when we're looking at our supply chain, we're really trying to optimize our working capital and then marry that with the way that we do our revenue forecasting, looking at the repeatability of what people are purchasing on their first time that they purchase, what are our most highly ranked repeat purchase items. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Katie Sellers, Director of Finance at Missouri. Missouri is a Toronto-based direct-to-consumer brand that empowers women to buy fine jewelry for themselves. Katie oversees the finance function at Missouri. This role has allowed her to marry her love for creativity and business. She began her career at Ernst & Young in the audit practice in Toronto and transitioned to serving Fortune 50 technology companies in the Bay Area in EY's accounting and transaction advisory practice. She has gone on to work at several high-performing technology and innovation firms. Katie specializes in establishing lean and agile teams and helping startups achieve scale. Her key strengths include a passion for improving operational effectiveness and her ability to use data-driven insights to create impactful change. Katie obtained her CPA-CA designation while at EY. She also holds an Honors Business Administration degree from the Richard Ivey School of Business at Western University. Here's Katie, Director of Finance at Missouri. Hey, Katie, thanks for spending some time on The Backbone. We've got lots to cover, and so let's dive right in. Uh, You started your career at EY in Toronto. Uh, From there, you worked on HP separation into two public companies uh, in the Bay Area before moving back to Toronto to join CoinSquare as a director of uh, FP&A. You're now the finance leader at Majuri an emerging direct-to-consumer brand. So talk to me about your journey into tech and how it all started for you. Hi, Shubham. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on The Backbone. I'm excited to be here. Uh, So obviously, by that introduction, I have a little bit of a non-traditional career path for a CA, but really the way it started was I ended up in business school at Ivy and graduated there in 2012. I then uh, joined Ernst & Young in Toronto in their core assurance practice. And so for my first three years at EY, I really was focused on serving large public clients, not specifically in the technology space, but a lot of uh, public clients. So really exposed to financial reporting, public filings and things like that. Uh, When I qualified for my CA with EY in Toronto, I actually had the opportunity to join EY in San Francisco and was internally recruited to work in the Bay Area and was lucky enough to work on a really interesting transaction in more of a transaction advisory and accounting advisory capacity for Hewlett Packard. And so at that time, that really was my initial introduction to tech and that was more really high tech, uh, more of a legacy company. So 
there wasn't really the same aspects of, you know, growing a SaaS business and things like that. It was more around how do you maintain and keep a large company agile so that it really can compete with companies that are coming up of the startup environments that they're in and whether it's the Bay Area or Toronto or wherever else around the globe. But that really was my first sort of introduction to tech. And while I was in San Francisco, I really was exposed to startups in general uh, different ways that people were thinking about solving complex problems. And so when I decided that it was time to move back to Toronto in at the end of 2017, you know, Toronto was a very different city at that time than it was when I left in 2015 to go to SF. There was a really big startup scene. There were interesting things happening specifically around blockchain, AI, and just really innovative companies. So uh, when I came back to Toronto, I decided I wanted to really take the leap of faith, be a problem solver, and join a startup. And so that's how I ended up at CoinSquare. And around that time, as some people might remember, that's really when there was the initial uptick in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and blockchain was a really hot topic. So I joined that startup really in their FP&A capacity. And it was around the time where we were, it was around 150 employees and the business was really looking to scale. So I was taking what I had learned really with my time at EY, being uh, in the Bay Area and really helping that company scale and put in place a lot of processes and procedures really to help them grow. At the end of the day, I've always been a creative person as well. So in high school, I did art and art history all the way through grade 12. And so when I was picking my career path, my mom had sort of said to me, you know, are you sure that you want to go to business school? And I had always said, yeah, for sure I do. Uh, but I think I'd learned through my career that I am a much more creative person than I ha had initially thought I was. So during my time at EY and then at CoinSquare, I'd always been drawn to projects or times when I was working on things that were more creative in nature. I have side Instagram accounts on the side where I had sort of been really into interior design and things like that. And I actually had the opportunity with my sister to do some work for uh, Missouri in a social capacity earlier in 2018. So that was really my first um, introduction to the brand itself. And then, you know, as I was sort of to think about who I am as a person and a professional, when Missouri was looking to hire their first in-house finance hire as a director, I sort of thought to myself, you know, this is the perfect opportunity for me to bring together both my creative side and my business side and really join a company where I feel like I'm invested in the product and the brand and can help scale a company that's just more attuned to me as a person. That's amazing. So thanks for that overview. Now, tell me a little bit more about Missouri. What does the company do and what is it all about? So Missouri is a direct-to-consumer e-commerce brand that is really focused on the luxury fine good jewelry market so we target women between the ages of 25 to 35 who are working professionals and really empowering them to make those purchases that maybe traditionally before were made by a man or as a gift or by family and really empowering women to 
buy those luxury items for themselves. And so we're able to do that by being a direct-to-consumer brand, really sourcing and producing all of the goods ourselves and cutting out the traditional middleman. Uh, we also have a, a retail as well as an e-commerce component. So we're trying to identify with our com- customers in both a physical bricks and mortar location as well as online for people who might not be in some of our key markets like Toronto or New York or LA. That makes sense. And so unlike, you know, typical software companies or SaaS companies, direct to consumer brands like Missouri that you mentioned have less predictable revenue streams. And so a customer that may have bought your product or, or a piece of jewelry last month may not make a repeat purchase for months. And so what challenges does this pose for you as a finance leader uh, in, in things like forecasting? Yeah, so it is definitely a different business model than a lot of tech companies you see that are really developing software applications. So instead of being really focused on monthly recurring revenue, we are the way we forecast our business is we're looking at new versus repeat customers and really trying to understand what is the purchasing behavior of our customers themselves instead of locking them into a 12 or month by month contract. We forecast our business really using a cohort model. So breaking our customers down into X number of people purchased in January of 2019 based on our uh, the repeatability that we see in our customers and we're using historic data for that. We say, okay, a thousand people purchased in January, 2% of people will repurchase from that cohort in any given month on a recurring basis. And we're forca- we're, we forecast our recurring customer revenue uh, using that methodology. But it's really around new customer acquisition where we're making a lot of assumptions in terms of what our revenue is going to be. And so that's really striking a fine balance between marketing, life cycle marketing in terms of who are our new customers? Where are they going to come from? Are we pulling customers from paid channels, organic? Are we really heavily investing on Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest or any of those social channels to really drive revenue? And then also, you know, looking at based on our repeat customers, what do we think is our average order size? How many units per transaction generally do we see people purchasing and trying to forecast the business out that way? But with any high growth company, obviously there are things that are always changing, different customer tastes, new product lines that we're launching. So it really is something that we actively monitor on a weekly basis and then are always reforecasting based on how we see our customers behaving. Yeah, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Um, a couple of things I wanted to dig into, uh, you know, again, unlike uh, SaaS companies, at Majuri, I imagine you have to manage inventory levels and, and being able to forecast demand, uh, like you mentioned, through cohort analyses. Um, how do you then take that and and determine how much inventory you need to maintain on hand when you're launching a new product for instance how do you know how much of it to manufacture you know just given your your 
uh, predictability and uh, forecasting abilities. Inventory is the largest asset we have on our balance sheet. So there is a large emphasis that we place on really understanding how our inventory is moving, optimizing our supply chain. And that's really, you know, the core of how this business was built. Nora and Maj, our CEO and COO, the co-founders, it was really built on having a almost a just-in-time supply chain where we could keep really low inventory levels and be really responsive to customer needs um, and not really investing an overly large amount of our cash in the supply chain. But as you can imagine, as this company's grown and we're now processing tens of thousands of orders a month instead of maybe a couple hundred, our supply chain has had to change dramatically. So we've we've had to invest in relationships with third-party manufacturers, manufacturers that are overseas. And so instead of having maybe a two to three week turnaround on our inventory purchasing, we're now in more of a four to six or even six to eight week from when you place the purchase order to when you might receive the inventory. When we're looking at our supply chain, we're really trying to optimize our working capital and then sort of marry that with the way that we do our revenue forecasting, looking at the repeatability of what people are purchasing on their first time that they purchase, what are our most highly ranked repeat purchase items, and then really focusing on our tier one product mix. So that drives 80% of our revenue, but might be 20% of our actual SKUs and really pays placing a, a high emphasis on the fact that we never want to have stockouts in our tier one inventory and are actively managing to ensure that there's no lost sales opportunity there. And so how big of a role or maybe not big at all does data play into all of this? Data plays a huge role in our organization. And I'm really happy to say that as a startup, I think Sometimes startups can get lost in the weeds and make decisions based on gut instead of data. And we're a very data-driven organization here. Everything's tracked. Everything feeds into Looker, which is our business intelligence tool. So we're very highly focused on data. We make all of our purchasing decisions and forecasts based on data, like I was talking about new versus repeat, as well as mixing in, you know, what are our top tier one products. But ultimately, where we really want to get to is, as you can imagine, there's a, a margin of error that comes when you're forecasting, especially in this day and age when people's tastes are changing quite dramatically. Uh, and with the number of SKUs that we have, you know, it, it's a lot of pressure that we place on our forecasting, planning and merchandising divisions here. So our ultimate goal really is to be able to integrate AI and machine learning. And I know those are buzzwords in the startup com community, but really to be able to leverage those technologies to be able to actually facilitate our purchasing and planning functions at Missouri. So instead of having someone manually going through and calculating, you know, what's what's the inventory that's outside of our optimal purchasing schedule? What is inventory that we're going to sell out of before we have a chance to reorder? Really using machine learning to sort to train a program to understand the way that our inventory flows, our customers' purchase habits, and then actually having this a system tell us 
when we need to be ordering inventory instead of relying on a human. Obviously, we'll still have a human reviewing and stress testing to make sure there's no issues or errors or really bad judgment calls. But at the end of the day, we want to be enabled by technology. And I think that's one interesting way that we're working towards uh, having data play an even larger role in our organization. So, you know, sticking with the, the data-driven approach theme, um, you mentioned some of these already, but what are the key metrics that you're always looking to monitor as the finance leader of a direct-to-consumer brand? And then as a follow-up to that, you know, like you mentioned, Majuri not only sells online, but you have physical bricks-and-mortar locations in Toronto, New York City, and LA. And so are there specific metrics that you look at given the company's omni-channel approach? versus just selling online or bricks and mortar? Definitely. In terms of KPIs, uh, at the top line, a a lot of them are similar to any traditional startup. I mean, we're very concerned around our cash burn. That is something that instead of being um, invested really in headcount, we do have large headcount here as well, but a lot of it is going into CapEx and expanding our business since, like you said, we do have a retail component as well as e-commerce and we're investing a lot into our supply chain. So cash burn is something that we're looking at on a daily basis and then on a weekly basis, doing sort of a flash report for our executive team to really see where that's sitting. Uh, On the flip side of that, we're also really looking at accounts payable, days and AP. Since we have uh, suppliers that we have relationships with, you know, we really want to make sure that we're optimizing the terms and not paying before we have to, but then at the same time, keeping our suppliers happy and making sure we're not going over any of our credit limits. Something that's probably quite different than a lot of startups in the tech space is really looking at uh, days in inventory and inventory turns. So like a, a traditional jewelry company like a Tiffany's or Burke's, they might be having inventory turn one to 1.5 times a year based on the way their supply chain works. We're more interested in having our inventory turn a lot faster than that. So anywhere between seven to 10 times a year, that's our ultimate goal of how fast we want our inventory to be turning. Uh, And then when you think about the consumer side of things, you know, we want to be looking at our revenue, our average order size, how many units per transaction our customers are transacting with, and then really looking at the top of our funnel. You know, when we're driving people to our website using marketing, what's our ultimate conversion rate once people are getting to the website and then tracking them all the way through to their actual ultimate purchase. So even if someone's put things in their cart, what's their actual checkout conversion. Uh, So those are some of the main things that we look at overall as a business. As you said about the omni-channel approach, bricks and mortar versus e-commerce, we are looking pretty heavily at the profitability of the retail stores themselves. Whenever we open a retail location, we were making the decision in our head, is this a revenue driving location or is this a marketing expense? So based on if you're going to a tier one city like Toronto, New York, LA, SF, those are tier one locations where we can expect our retail locations to be profitable versus if you're going somewhere like Boston or 
uh, Charleston or Chicago, based on the customer there, it might be more of a branding exercise. So really looking to see how are we going to evaluate this bricks and mortar location, but then still looking at, you know, what's the conversion of people who walk through the door versus purchase? What's the net promoter score when people are leaving? If we have any detractors really looking to see, you know, what could have made their experience more positive. But at the end of the day, we want to be looking at both bricks and mortar, any e-commerce separately, but then also taking a holistic approach and evaluating our business as a whole. And and so I want to dig into the the uh, two types of bricks and mortar strategies that you mentioned, one being a revenue generating location and another being a marketing or brand awareness type of location. The three that you mentioned, I guess, uh, Toronto, New York and LA are all revenue generating in the revenue generating mm-hmm. category. If you were to have, uh, let's say, a location more for brand awareness, how does that play into the amount of inventory that you keep at those locations? Would you keep less because it's more of a, you know, have more SKUs so you can showcase the brand? Or is there a different approach to a revenue generating bricks and mortar store versus a marketing or brand awareness store? Yeah. So in terms of revenue generating, really, we're, we're really focused focused on converting people who are walking through the store doors. So Toronto is actually our number one converting location for customers. And we think that's because it's not really in a, in a high foot traffic area. So it's actually up on college closer to Ossington area versus our store in New York is on Spring Street. So people might not be going into the New York store with the intention of a trip to go and visit Missouri. It might be they're a passerby and they've heard of our name. So they come in to check us out. But really at the end of the day with our revenue driving stores, we're, we're really focused on conversion when people are walking through the door. So that's really, you know, having product on the floor that they can see and feel and try on having educated stylists on the floor who can show people what things might work with their skin tone or complexion or what type of lifestyle they lead, whether they're super active and are going to the gym or if they just like something that they're going to be able to wear to work. Uh, So that really in, in the revenue driving side of things, you know, having the product, having things that people can try on and really focusing on converting. But then if we're thinking about, something that's more of a branding exercise, we we don't care as much in terms of having our full SKU set in those locations. So we might be focused on tier one products that people can try on and then potentially order online later and really focused on more of an experience so people can identify with the brand and, and remember it and become a, a customer down the line. So we might do things like our piercing parties where you can come to Missouri. We have a set of studs where you can get pierced by a piercer. And then that's an experience and a relationship you're building with the brand. Or we might do things like yoga in the park or do a workout class in a city where we showcase our 14 karat jewelry that won't tarnish or rust while you're working out. So it's really just dependent on you know, building that experience and fostering the relationship with the customer. So ultimately they will purchase, but in the tier one markets, 
really focusing on conversion of when they're in the store themselves. That's that's incredible. Uh, one last question here before we move into our quick fire round. And, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, you've had some very unique roles within finance after leaving professional services, both at CoinSquare and now at Missouri. And so in your opinion, what is the importance of the finance function at an emerging direct to consumer company? And then as a follow up, what makes a great finance leader in companies like this? I think the name of your podcast actually says it all. I really do think that the finance department is the really solid backbone of any organization, especially at startups. Uh, I I did not pay you to say that. (laughs) I just want to make that clear. Especially (laughs) at startups, whether they're SaaS-based or direct-to-consumer based, I think a lot of these companies start with a founder or co-founders with really great ideas who are super scrappy and able to maybe raise a little bit of seed round and really get things going and get some traction. I don't necessarily think that the finance function is the first thing they're thinking about when they're building their business. So having the opportunity as a finance leader to come into one of these companies, really you're being relied upon to ensure the financial health and longevity of the organization the same way any CFO is at a larger public company, right? At the end of the day, your ultimate concern is that the company is a going concern and there's not going to be any cash flow issues. The investors and VCs are going to be happy and are going to get the return. They're going to want to give you that series C or D and ultimately stand by you to an ultimate exit or IPO. So I think the finance function is is ultimately critical for the success of a lot of these organizations. And I think the more that the co-founders are willing to work with the finance team and see them as business partners to the company and not just the police who are telling people like, hey, you can't be spending that much money on a trip or don't go to that conference. That's never what I want to be in my finance function. I want to be the person that someone comes to and says, hey, how do I make a better decision around this while optimizing the capital that we have? You know, what are some, I guess, characteristics or traits of, because, you know, these types of roles aren't for everyone. And uh, like you mentioned, you kind of followed a non-traditional uh, path into this. Um, what, what would you say are, are some things that make a great finance leader for companies like this? Because it is in a traditional uh, company. I think the first thing is you genuinely need to be interested in the business and what they're doing. So for me, coming to Missouri, like I said earlier on, I am a very creative person. In my spare time, even when I was working at EY or CoinSquare, I was always doing creative things on the side, like doing interior design for my condo or taking creative photos to put on Instagram or even working with brands like Missouri to... to show my friends, hey, this is a cool brand that is doing something that you'd be interested in. So for me, this was a natural fit because it was sort of my hobby outside of work. And I think especially when you're joining a startup, you know, you have to be scrappy, you have to be a problem solver, you have to be hardworking. And it's way more motivating to be those things when you're actually interested in the product and the outcome of the company itself. So definitely you need to be invested in the company, the product and the brand. I think the second thing is you really have to be 
a problem solver and you yourself as a finance leader have to have a backbone. You can't just let the sales department or operations or anyone really come and bulldoze you because like I said, you are the one who is ensuring the financial health of the organization. So being the person to speak up in meetings and say like, Hey, has anyone really thought about the cost benefit or the ROI of doing this? What really is the purpose that we're spending this money for? Because ultimately you do want an ROI on uh, the capital that you're spending and so do your investors. So really being a problem solver, speaking up for things that you think need to be challenged. I think those are two things when, when you are joining a startup as a finance leader definitely characteristics that you need to have. That makes a ton of sense. So what I'd like to do now is jump into our quick fire round. And so the way this works, is I'll ask you a couple of questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Perfect. All right. So what is your go-to online resource for all things startup finance or growth finance related? This one's actually my network and I am part of a startup finance Slack group in Toronto. And it's definitely my go-to resource to ask people questions meet with people if they've gone through similar things. I actually had coffee with someone this morning from that group and learned some great stuff. So don't underestimate your network when you're in startups. Nice. And what's your favorite productivity hack? Mine is a paper to-do list where I write down all my top priorities on a daily basis and just cross them off as I go. I find it very satisfying to see things getting crossed off and it just helps set my intention for the day. Nice, I've heard that one before, it's a popular one. Uh, What's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? I always check my calendar for the next day and plan exactly what the cadence of the day is gonna look like. I know a lot of things get derailed, but I wanna have a good understanding of when do I need to get into the office? Do I need to prep something beforehand? What are any external meetings that I might have? What are things I can move around if something comes up? But having a solid understanding of what my day is going to look like and knowing where I can flex it when I need to. That makes sense. And what's uh, one tech jargon that makes you cringe? I actually had to refrain from using this word during the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Ecosystem, I feel like this word is just overdone right now. Everything's an ecosystem or part of an ecosystem. I mean, it it has its time and place, but right now I'm just a little bit over it. Fair enough. Yeah, that that word does get tossed around quite a bit. Uh, What's the best advice you've received so far in your career? I think one of the best things that I've heard recently, and this is something that I think I really learned at CoinSquare and something that I, I really value and want to ensure we maintain at Missouri is conflict and debate at work are some of the greatest things that you can have. And it is actually one of the best ways that you can assess the health of your executive team and the health of your overall organization. If people aren't running into conflict or having debates around key decisions that need to be made, it means there's no buy-in, people don't trust each other, and you're likely not making the best decisions. So really fostering that environment of trust and making sure that people 
are able to challenge things so the company ends up making the best decision. Wow, that's great advice for sure. Well, thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate your time and it's been a pleasure chatting with you about Missouri, the unique opportunities and challenges that a direct-to-consumer brand faces that uh, unlike it's is kind of, I guess, more traditional SaaS companies face um, and really learning about uh, Missouri's omni-channel approach to uh, retail, whether it be bricks and mortar stores or e-commerce, how you think about uh, the KPIs and metrics that are important in both settings as the finance leader. So I've really enjoyed this chat and thank you so much for your time, Katie. Thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. Thanks. Take care. Bye. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. My chat with Katie at Missouri is the first finance leader of a direct-to-consumer brand that I've had on this show. If you enjoyed the show with Katie, learning about the differences between D2C brands and traditional SaaS companies, leave a rating or review on whichever platform you're enjoying the show. While you're here, check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.